I grew up outside of Philadelphia, like 15 minutes from the, the airport. And, and God worked out some really cool things to bring me to New Egypt, uh, I guess five years ago, around this time. And I, I, got, married, I got married a year later to Allison, and we, we were just struggling with all these changes and with where we were in life. And just a couple of months after we got married, we came here. And we found what we didn't expect. A family in a state where we had no family. It's going to be four years in May that Allison and I have been here. And I wouldn't... I wouldn't trade those four years for anything in the world. We have found family that will laugh with us, weep with us, rejoice with us. New Life Church, I love you with the bottom of my heart. My heart is burdened for all of you. And my heart's desire is that everyone that walks in through those doors gets what Allison and I have gotten a family that loves deeply. And our passage this morning is a serious warning about a sneaky sin that can burrow deep in a church and kill it from the inside out. And I don't want that for my family. And what I figure is I'm going to read the scripture And then we're going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in us. So it's going to be up there on the screen, but I always encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to open it and let's read it together. This is James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters... Do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point, is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, 
also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let us go before God in prayer. Dear God, I thank you for my family here. You've been so gracious to me and you've been so gracious to us as a church. Lord, I pray that you will please use your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. You know what we need. You know what I need and you know what they need, God, better than I. Convict where they need to be convicted. Encourage where they need to be encouraged. Pray, Lord, that you will stir the affections of our hearts so that we will love you, love each other, and love those outside of our family. I pray these things because you are good. The lamb and the roaring lion who loves fiercely. Help us to be in awe of you as we look at your perfect, good word that is alive and active. Jesus, I I pray these things in your name. Amen. So the sin of favoritism, right there in verse 1, I think it's worth noting. What does he say right there in verse 1? He says, my brothers and sisters. This isn't some harsh criticism against a church by someone that's just fed up. This is someone that cares deeply for the souls of those who are listening hear it that way. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So this idea of holding on to the faith is actually seen all throughout the New Testament. And you actually see it in the Old Testament too. This is the idea of the Christian holds on to their faith, they stay committed to Christ, they don't abandon, the Christian holds on. I think of it like the baker bakes, the teacher teaches, the Christian holds on to their faith. And we're actually going to talk more about that next Sunday. It's this idea of the Christian persevering, holding on like a child clings to their mother when danger comes. And then you see, right before he says, hold on to the faith, he says, don't show favoritism. And there's, there's different ways you could define favoritism, right? I, I, I thought a lot about it, and I, the way that was most helpful for me to think about it was favoritism is special treatment shown to a group or person for sinful reasons. I think it's important to say sinful reasons, Because if there's someone in your workplace that is smarter than you and more gifted than you and they got the promotion, I don't think you can say, that's favoritism. No, that's not how it works. 
but it is this special treatment shown to a group or person for sinful reasons. And it's interesting. He says, don't show favoritism as you hold on to the faith. It's kind of like if you were talking to your student in school and you said, don't cheat as you work to be an honest student. You can't be an honest student and cheat. The two just don't work. And what he's saying here is you can't be committed to Jesus if you are showing favoritism. The two are opposed. And I I think this is the perfect opener to everything else he's going to say because it shows us the seriousness of this sin. A sin we probably just think is this little, little sin. So don't show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So that is like the thesis statement of the 13 verses. This is the main point. And then verses 2 to 3, he gives this example of what it looks like, favoritism in this specific area. And it's not hard to imagine, right? Like two people walk into a church. It was probably a house church. Two people walk in, one who looks obviously wealthy, well put together, successful, and the other, the opposite. One is treated favorably, special treatment. The other's in a way, mistreated and ignored. Before anything else, I feel like it's worth asking, how would you react if those two individuals came into this building? I think it's worth asking. Now, maybe you wouldn't even be bothered to talk to either of them. But consider... If one, obviously wealthy, maybe you're more comfortable around, and one not, how would you react if they walked in here? So James gives this, I think, striking example of what favoritism looked like in this local church, but that's not the only way favoritism shows up in the local church. It might show up because of race, gender, age, social status, and just personal preference. Like, I want you to think. Think about your own heart. Where might favoritism show up in your own heart and how you treat others here in the local church or even outside of the local church? All right. So, like, practically, let's think. Because maybe if, if a wealthy man and a non-wealthy man walked into the church, maybe we wouldn't treat them this way. I hope not. But how else might favoritism show up here in our family? Well, maybe there's a a bitterness and maybe a a bad talk about certain individuals because they're the opposite of the ones you favor. Now, that's the problem with favoritism, by the way. It's often two-sided. Special treatment shown to one and usually mistreatment shown to another. So maybe it's this bitterness, this maybe even an avoidance of a certain group or, or person. Let's think of it like this. You might favor your age group here in this church where the only people you pay attention to and take time to interact with is those in your age group. And I think both sides of the age spectrum can be guilty of this. Those who are older in the faith, their focus can just be directed towards those who are around their same age and never reach out to those who are younger even though they are in desperate need of a relationship with you. 
And even those who are younger can be guilty of this, where you really only focus all of your attention on those who are younger and who you're comfortable with. How else might it show up? Maybe you favor those you know and you ignore and avoid those you don't know. The people who walk in here on a Sunday morning who are new and we ignore them and avoid them. Think in your own heart, where might favoritism show up in your heart? And we see the first problem of favoritism. Well, we see, we've seen a lot already, but we see the first problem in the text in verse 4. It says, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This idea of, of favoritism, special treatment, mistreatment, means that in your eyes, some are more valuable and worthy than others. It looks down on and devalues those who were made in God's image. Now, I want to kind of zoom in. Like, let's zoom in and think about favoritism a little bit more because I don't want anyone saying, oh, I wouldn't treat a rich person or a poor person like that, so I'm okay. I want to zoom in. The root, I think, of favoritism is pride and selfishness because the self becomes God. It's your judgments. And suddenly, life in church is all about you. When you come here, it's about your preferences, what makes you comfortable. And it completely destroys God's desire for the local church. I think of two pictures of the local church, of what we're supposed to be. The first is a, it's a family, one that knows each other and loves each other and is united and doesn't sweep problems under the rug, but tries to deal with it in a healthy way, loves each other, works together so that we will know God and enjoy him and make him known. The second picture is, it's like a lighthouse, pleading and warning that destruction is coming, but rescue is possible. And what happens when we show favoritism? Well, suddenly, the, what's supposed to be a family, it just looks like any other group out there. Especially now, it seems like every group is fighting with each other. And we look just like that. Suddenly, we have divisions and cliques. Right? There's, there's this group, and there's this group, and there's this group, and maybe they talk about, about each other, or even just best case scenario, maybe they just never interact, but that's not what the church is supposed to be. This will be the death of you and the church, and it'll spread. What happens to that lighthouse? Well, I think the light dims, so only a faint warning is given, and it's not taken seriously by anyone because... This just looks like any other group. No, there is something absolutely wonderful just in these first four verses, and it's easy to miss. If it's commanded by God, it's because God cares about that thing, which means God cares about us not showing special treatment. Think of how much pain and sorrow and death have happened because of favoritism, right? The, the intense versions of favoritism like racism, think of, of how much horrible things have been done. And God is saying, I am against favoritism. Don't let there even be a hint of it in your gatherings. It shows us God doesn't look at people the way we look at people. He looks at the heart. 
He cares about the heart. This, just the first four verses show something beautiful and wonderful about our God. Now we see the second problem in verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? I think if the world was in charge, or I know that if the world was in charge, who would they choose to save and use to accomplish their plans? It would be the rich, the wealthy, the successful, those who seem put together, right? I think we can just see that as we look around. And I think if you're honest, you would probably use the rich and the successful and the seemingly put together to save and use to accomplish your plans. But here it's saying God, God does the opposite. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul kind of shows that God does what seems foolish to the world. And he does it for two big reasons. First, to humble the world. Second, it shows his power. Like God needs no man. But he saves and uses the ones the world looks down on and discards. And by saving them and using them to turn the world upside down, or really upside right, he shows his glorious power. He's saying, I can use whoever I want. I will use the ones you look down on and discard to make my name known. And this is wonderful. Because you don't have to be rich, successful, well put together. You don't have to have a college degree. You don't have to have a PhD. Thank goodness. To turn the world upside right. God uses everyday people. When I think of the people that have had the biggest impact on my life, it's not the rich and the wealthy and the powerful and they they have the big businesses. It's the people that just simply obey. I think of little Patty here. My goodness, she was so faithful. (laughs) Now, If we read this, we could walk away thinking that God saves the poor simply because they're materially poor. And that's not true. There are plenty of poor people who are going to hell. Just like there are plenty of rich people going to hell. So why does it say, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? When I think first, if you look all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, God is always going after the poor, the oppressed, and the hurting. Like, that's his heart. He cares for them. Like in Luke 1, 51 to 53, it says, He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. So there's the sense where Jesus is going after the poor and the hurting and the suffering and those that don't have much. But there's something deeper going on. And I think Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Sermon on the Mount, helps us understand this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. 
Jesus saves those who see their need for a savior. And I think as you look in scripture and as you look out in the world, there is a temptation for those that have much to not see how much they need Christ. As they will put their trust and their hope in the things they have and the things they have done. They cover their need with all of these things. And though not all those who lack wealth are poor in spirit, it seems like they are more likely to see, I've got nothing here. There's got to be something more. I I need a savior. And actually, as you look around the world, this seems to be true. So I was reading an article in The the Guardian, which is not a a Christian site. Um, The writer was saying that statistics show that in the rich Western part of the world, Christianity is slowly dying. But growth is expected around the world, specifically in the poor areas. And the writer said it was because the poor go for God. I think it's because there's a better chance through the working of the Holy Spirit. They see their need. There's this myth out there by those that try to discredit Christianity, that Christianity is just for the rich, well-off white people. But actually, when you look at the history of Christianity and worldwide, we're actually the minority. He's going after the poor and the hurting and the suffering and he's often using them and, and saving them because he cares about them and because he can show, I don't need you. I look at the heart. And by the way, this should be striking to us because it's easy for us to feel or, or put our hope in our richness in things and our heirs of what's going to happen here. And what we have here. If you've been to like one semester of college, you're in the top 1% of the wealthiest in the entire world. I have a good friend here who said, we're probably the only people in the world and in history that has to like forcibly stop ourselves from eating. Right? You go to a buffet and you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I feel like I'm going to explode. I I just got to stop. I could keep going, but I got to stop. Right, or when, maybe if you have a, a wife or a mother that cooks really good, you have to like forcibly stop yourselves. That's not happening in most of the world, and that like never happened in history. We are the rich. And if we're not careful, we will lose sight that our main focus should be being rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him. See the third problem in verses 6 to 7. Yet you have dishonored the poor. Right? Like God uses the poor. He goes after the poor. This is his plan. He sees the heart. This is God's desire. Yet you dishonor the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name? That's, that's God that was invoked over you? Not only was them dishonoring the poor and showing favoritism, going against God's plan and his working in the world, but also it was just foolish. They were making life difficult for them. They were persecuting them and they were showing favoritism. And it's not like it was this, we are loving our neighbor, so they're persecuting us, so I'm going to have them sit by the chair next to me. No, that's not what it was. And it is so clear. Well, that's how sin works, right? Absolutely foolish. 
in verse 8, in contrast to favoring and showing special treatment for sinful reasons, he says, Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So like the first command in the passage was, don't show favoritism as you hold on to the faith. This kind of second command is almost like the first thing reworded is, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew 22, 36 to 39, like Jesus just showed the importance of this command. So one of the religious leaders asked Jesus, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the whole law kind of summed up in these two commands, love God, love people. If you love God, you're going to be loving people. If you're not loving people, it might be because you're really not loving God. And and the Good Samaritan parable, if you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it this afternoon. It showed that you are commanded not only to love those who are like you or those who like you. You are commanded to love the ones who are unlike you. The ones that are maybe looked down upon and discarded by our culture. It means loving the ones that frustrate the snot out of you. It means loving the ones that don't like you. So church, do you love your neighbor? Do you love your family? Your coworker? Your spouse? Your literal neighbor? Do you love each other here? Do you show selfless, sacrificial love towards them? And Jesus is our example in this. Perfect son of God, with his father in heaven, added humanity to his deity, came here, fully God, fully man, died to save sinners who really wanted nothing to do with him, and if given a chance on their own, would reject them until the day they died. But he showed selfless, sacrificial love for us. Do you pray for the ones you struggle to love? The ones you want to avoid, mistreat, even if the mistreatment is avoidance or or bad talk. I have found in my own heart, I am very selfish. And a good starting place for me in killing this sin is just to start getting uncomfortable and start doing the exact opposite of what my sinful nature tells me to do. Right? So maybe you're like, don't want to get uncomfortable and talk to these people I don't know. Go do the exact opposite and go talk to them. Worst case scenario, it's an awkward conversation. I would rather someone be like, that was a little awkward, than this is a church? This is what the Bible's talking about? This is what we're supposed to be? That was, 
That just looked like any other gathering. Kill that sin by purposefully doing the exact opposite of what it tells you to do. And in problem four that we see in the text in verses 9 through 11 is that favoritism condemns us. In verse 9, if, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. I think it's easy to think of favoritism as just not that bad. Now, maybe we see the extreme forms like racism and those things as like, that's that bad. But the little avoidance in my heart, it's not that bad. But James says you're condemned as a lawbreaker by just this sin of favoritism. There's no such thing as just this little sin. This is sobering. I am condemned before God even just by the sin of favoritism. And I know that if I got a marker and wrote even small every sin I've ever done, this whole place would probably be full and you too. For a moment, just think about just how condemned and guilty we are. In verse 10, He says, whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. Now, I think an important clarification is James is not saying all sins are equal. I don't think the Bible teaches that. But it teaches that if you sin once, break one command of God, you are guilty before God as breaking the whole law of God. I was reading that, and I was like, how does that work? But I think we usually think of God's commands as these individual separate rules. But James is kind of helping us see that we should see the rules as a whole piece. Like God's commands are like a chain, interconnected commands given by the one God who has given us his good desire and design. Like his commands are like a a chain, interconnected. And when you break one law, it's like you're breaking that chain and you are guilty in God's eyes as breaking it all. You are condemned before the law giver as a law breaker. And in verse 11, he gives an example of this. He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So listen, you might not commit adultery, but you murder, you're a lawbreaker, or the other way around. And again, Jesus' words are sobering here in the Gospels where you can commit adultery and murder, and you do commit adultery and murder in your hearts. Like, we are condemned before God, even just by the sins that we do and say. We're also condemned before God by the sins that are in our hearts, that maybe no one else knows. I pray the Lord is humbling us to see how condemned we are. And it's especially sobering because Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. So pursue holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. So without absolute perfection, you will not stand before the God who has no darkness in him. It's 1 John 1. Like you're born stained by sin and with just favoritism, you are condemned to eternal death. Have you ever thought to yourself, well, 
They still have never done what that guy did. And maybe you've never said it in that way, but I think we all think it. We become judges with evil thoughts where we kind of like, okay, I'm pretty bad, but compared to that guy, come on, I'm a little bit better. And I think there's this belief, or I know there is, when you look at the statistics of what even people who call themselves Christians think about what will happen on Judgment Day, I think some people will think, well, the couple good things I've done will outweigh the bad, and I can... I know I'm better than some of these people. But James is just absolutely cutting through any delusion that you're under that you're a good person. James is saying, one sin, one sin favoritism. You are condemned before God as a lawbreaker of all of his commands. You are no more deserving of heaven than the person next to you. Saying at least I'm not like them, even just in our heart, is like you and your neighbor's house is on fire and you go, their flames are a little bit higher. Your houses are both on fire. You can't look at your sin that way because God doesn't look at your sin that way. James is absolutely cutting through any delusion. We are good people who, when we stand before God, can point to maybe the few good things we think we did. In verse 12, we kind of see this third command in the 13 verses. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. What a striking verse. You know how we put nice comforting verses on coffee cups and on nice photos on social media? Let's let's put this verse on a coffee cup. We always put the comforting ones. What about the striking ones that humble us and the ones that kind of take us aback? My brothers and sisters, speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. By the way, I love how James talks about the law in these first two chapters of his letter, the law of freedom. We don't look at God's rules that way. The world definitely doesn't. They look at God's law and they say, he said, I can't be this way. I can't do this. He hates me. He's a a killjoy. But James is saying this is the law of freedom. There is a freedom in flourishing in God's good design as you obey. There is a freedom in obeying. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. And in verse 13, the last verse, he gives us one of the expectations we should have for judgment. Because all will stand in judgment before the one true God. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. My goodness. He can't and is not saying that if you are someone that shows mercy, you know, that, that's going to lead to you being saved. As Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. It is not your own doing, not a result of works, but a gift of God. There's plenty of people who reject Christ that show mercy because they are made in the image of God. So what does James mean? 
For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Well, showing mercy is a sign that you have been saved. And there'll be more on this next week. It's a Holy Spirit produced mercy. And if there is a pattern in your heart of not showing mercy, like if you're known as not being a merciful person, there's a deep issue in your soul. Maybe you or others excuse your lack of mercy as just you having a rough New Jersey attitude. But it might actually be that you aren't saved and that you shouldn't expect mercy on the day of judgment. Sometimes we excuse our sin as just, I just tell it like it is. I don't hold back. Yeah, I am a little rough. And there are different personalities. But don't excuse your sin and don't excuse the sin of the others around you because they might not be shown mercy on judgment day. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. I think it's inferred in verse 13 that the opposite is true as well. Judgment is with mercy to the one who has shown mercy. And actually, in the Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly what Jesus says. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. As we think about Judgment Day and how we are condemned before the one true God, the lawgiver, we're condemned as a lawbreaker. I want you, New Life Church, to know mercy is possible on that day of judgment because of the one who did what we never could. Jesus kept the whole law without stumbling. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, had no darkness in Him. The Divine One, unstained by sin, could stand in our place, take our punishment. Mercy is possible on that day of judgment because of the great exchange at the cross where the sins of all who would believe were placed on Jesus And by suffering under the just wrath of God, he took the punishment of those people's sins. Sins of those who would believe placed on Jesus. And Jesus' perfection, holiness, gifted to those who would believe. So that when we stand in judgment, we are covered by Jesus' perfection with every sin paid for. If you repent and believe, you can expect mercy on that day. Because Jesus took your sin and his perfection is given to you. Isaiah 53, 6, a prophecy about our Messiah. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And later in Isaiah 53, he talks about how every sin is laid on Jesus. Mercy is possible on that day of judgment because if you've believed, every sin is forgiven. All of your punishment poured out on another. Not a little bit of your punishment, not some, 
but all. Every sin forgiven, including the ones you can't forgive yourself for. The sins that others can't forgive you for. The sins you weren't aware of. The sins that keep you up at night. Every sin forgiven, paid for by the only one who didn't deserve the wrath of God but took it for you. Every sin paid. So brother and sisters, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom and who will be shown mercy on that day. I think of a criminal who knows they deserve full punishment. They are guilty. But imagine they found out that when they stand before the judge, they will be shown mercy. How do you think they would act? Be like that. Not taking advantage of the Lord's mercy. Being full of mercy and graciousness. Friends, the one who sees their need for mercy will be merciful. New Life Church, I, I love you deeply. My heart's desire is that we will all be shown mercy on that day. you're here and you have not trusted in Christ as your Savior, you can expect no mercy on that day. But you can confess your sins, believe that He died on the cross and rose again to save you. Church, I would encourage you to take verse 12 with you wherever you go when you're tempted to say something you shouldn't to post something that you shouldn't when you're tempted to talk bad about those whose God has put in authority over you when you're tempted to be harsh to withhold mercy to become a judge with evil thoughts to make this all about you New Life Church, I love you. Speak and act like those who will be judged by the law of freedom and shown mercy as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you that you, the one, the only one who did not deserve the wrath of God, 
you took it to save us. God, I pray for those that are here and don't know you. God, maybe they think they know you, but they don't. Convict their hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will please cause them to repent and believe. Lord, I pray for my family that know you. New Life Church, God, I thank you for them. I pray, God, that you will be working out maybe even the sneaky sins. Help us to kill them. Lord, I pray that we as a church will be known as those who speak and act like those who will be judged but shown mercy. I pray we will be a church known for that, that people as they walk in through the doors can feel it and see it. Lord, I pray that as we are with our families, in our homes, at work. I pray, Lord, that those around us will see that we speak and act like those who will be judged but shown mercy. Forgive us of our sins of favoritism and pride and no mercy. God, I pray your Holy Spirit will give us the grace to fight our sins, fight our selfishness, change us God Lord I thank you for your goodness to us and I thank you that you show mercy to sinners like us who deserve no mercy I praise you and thank you in your name Amen